0: About the craze, sweeping to LA. Cobra, 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 cobra. Do you want to do this dance? I can put you in a cobra,
1: cobra, cobra, cobra.
0: Hi everyone. Welcome to Waste Fellows, India's premier podcast for girls, gays, and horse straight men. I'm so excited to welcome Nija Deudar, a journalist, on the podcast today. Hi neja
1: Hi, Aliza. I'm so glad to be on Waste Fellows. I think this is the first podcast I decided to follow because of the name uh, of the podcast. That's great. I mean, that's that's the,
0: that's what we intend to be the draw to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh,
1: I'd just like to clarify at the start of this episode that uh, these views are mine and uh, they're not of my, they don't reflect what my employer organization or peers think. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah, um, thank you for that clarification. Um, So Nija and I will start this episode by talking about Boys Locker Room, um, and we'll then move into discussing the kind of paradigm shifts that took place in 2017, 2018, when coordinated call-out campaigns like the list of sexual harassers in academia, which is Losha, and the MeToo movement took hold in India. Um, This episode is going to be a larger discussion around the role of journalism in reporting sexual violence and harassment, call-out culture, and notions of justice within this context. Um, So, Nija, coming to Boy's Locker Room, which is sort Mm. of like the access point for this episode, Mm -hmm. I thought we could give the listeners a quick rundown of the events that took place, like a tight timeline, so that no one is lost when we're referring to certain events.
1: Um, So, Uh, yeah.
0: hmm.
1: So, I think the story sort of unfolded over four uh, four days. Uh, It started with... um, two or three girls sharing screenshots of a group chat uh, on Instagram uh, which consisted of boys from South Delhi schools. Some of these were minors, some of these were not. Um, And these screenshots uh, included conversations uh, where there were lewd comments passed about girls. Uh, Girls' photos were shared. Sometimes there were excerpts from conversations which were private between these girls and the boys um, in the group that were shared. Um, And there were also allegations that some of the pictures of the girls were morphed. Uh, This is what happened uh, the night when these screenshots were shared. The next morning, what followed was social media uproar. A lot of people started commenting about what should happen to these boys, a lot of people started talking about how uh, similar things have happened to them in terms of being shamed by um, their male peers when they were in school or when they were in college. Um, A few hours later, an apology of sorts emerged um, on Twitter and Instagram. It was uh, credited to the admin of the group, but we've not been able to verify this so far. Uh, And the admin apologized for his actions and he also listed a number of boys uh, who were not actually apparently involved in the conversation. They were just part of the group. At this point, I should mention that the initial screenshots that came out also featured uh, the names of the members of this group. Uh, And uh, some of them, their whole names were mentioned at that point. Um, After a few hours, on the second day, the Delhi Commission for Women and the Delhi Police or rather its cybercrime wing took cognizance of what happened and an unnamed FIR was filed um, against the group at large um, under the IPC and uh, Cybercrime Act. Uh, A few hours later, uh, rather in the morning, the Uh, news of a 14-year-old committing suicide came to light, but then it was later found that this boy was not related to the Boys Locker Room incident in any way. He was named in another MeToo allegation by a girl who accused him of molestation. Uh, Then, I think, uh, the following day, the group admin was arrested and uh, other members of Boys Locker Room were located. Uh, Their parents told the police that they would not leave the city, etc., And because of the ongoing lockdown, I think uh, the arrest didn't take place as swiftly as they would have otherwise. Um, A few days later, it emerged that uh, there was a Snapchat conversation that was um, included in all the screenshots that were being shared of the group chat. Uh, This Snapchat conversation was actually one of the things that framed the narrative of the boys' locker room uh, issue. And it featured a conversation between two people where uh, they were sort of talking about how it would... Uh, be very easy to rape a certain girl. Uh, It was later found that uh, this conversation was not between two boys. It was between a girl and a boy, and the girl was um, uh, pretending to be a boy and talking about herself with this other boy, and uh, she was allegedly testing him and his character by asking whether um, she, rather the girl, uh, could be easily raped or not, and whether he would agree to her plan. Uh, Now... um, I think more arrests have been made and questioning um, has uh, happened in the case, but uh, we don't know yet what else is going to happen. I think that's about how that four day uh, sequence of events took place.
0: Yeah. um, Thank you. That was a super comprehensive and easy to follow sequence of events Mm -hmm. Um, in a case with a lot of moving parts, you know, Mm -hmm. so thank you for that. Um, So I think the first thing that I wanted to ask you is why do you think this boy's locker room has captured public interest the way it has?
1: I think um, when a crime is committed by a juvenile, uh, irrespective of the nature of the crime, um, the crime becomes highlighted because society is guffawing at the fact that a young person could do something bad. Um, This is further exacerbated by the fact that it was a group of boys and that they were doing it so freely on instagram uh many of the girls whose pictures were exchanged were minors which i think sort of that is where outrage really began at the fact that this was happening to minor girls and all of the people involved are in school so i think um people were um surprised and both angry at the fact that uh, school children were behaving this way um the other thing is that i think When minors are involved, uh, people become a little confused about what the reaction to this should be. There were a lot of people were saying, you know, that they should be treated as um, adults would be, not as minors, since they were making um, such violent statements. Uh, There was a minor group of people who felt that, you know, maybe reform is the way forward. But I think the larger conversation was about how these boys deserve to be punished, how. They were essentially villainized, I think, and uh, because there was no defense put out, so to speak, because you have to remember that these are not um, adult men, not a lot of them were adult men with Twitter accounts, and a lot of them did not really respond to the, um, what do you call it, the allegations. Uh, It became a conversation which was centered on the allegations. Uh, One thing that I forgot to mention previously was that uh, there were uh, screenshots floating around of a boys locker room 2.0 and people were suggesting that these boys, now that they had been found um, right after the first call out, uh, they tried to make a second group where they could continue having those conversations. And the bio of this account suggested that they should create fake profiles and join it so that their real identities are not known. That is another Mm -hmm. reason that the outrage was um, very high. was because uh, people thought that, you know, they were going to go scot-free. I think a lot of the conversation around juvenile crime is the belief that people will go scot-free simply because of their age. So all of these things put together sort of um, led to a lot of public anger at the fact that, you know, our boys are doing this. Not the fact that, you know, like men are capable of this. Of course, we live in a country where, you know, um, violence against women is strife, but that this sort of behavior has gone down to the level of boys I think that is what made a lot of people angry
0: yeah and not just boys but sort of the uh, sort of like the future of the country in the sense that they come from such elite schools I think that was something that was also Mm -hmm. um, that was was mentioned over and over again that you know that these boys are going to grow up and be important and influential people just by virtue of their education Mm -hmm. and their Privilege, right? Yes. Um, Yeah, um, I I actually, I think my initial reaction to this was feeling really grossed out by the fact that adults were participating in a conversation around minors Hmm. in in this way. Like, I kind of, in my head, was like, okay, like, I feel like I don't belong here. And I understand Mm -hmm. why people are drawn to this case. Hmm. But, you know, knowing that high school... And is a place where there there is high drama and there are intense emotions and things mm. like this do play out on a regular level the fact that you know like for example my school um had boys who had a group where they would talk about girls in heinous ways mm. um and you know and I'm sure that this is something that a lot of women probably have experienced in for school sure. and college mm. and the fact that this suddenly came into the limelight was a bit shocking to me because I can't imagine the kind of irreparable damage that would have been done to me even if I was someone who was suffering in that context or to the boys in my class if suddenly you know something as in in a kid's mind something as stupid as like you know, talking shit on a, on a group was suddenly, you know, became a national conversation. So I think that was my initial response. And then I started mm-hmm. to understand that a lot of what, the, what adults were doing were using these kids as a conduit to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be their experiences or their thoughts about how uh, men, you know, guys who participate in this kind of discussion should be punished or should be, you know, apprehended. Mm -hmm. um so that's kind of i felt like adults were kind of just using it to draw it back to themselves but Mm -hmm. sort of um i wanted to ask you another question then about the the role whether you can shed any light on the role adults have played in this for example the schools the police the parents um have they been behaving responsibly or do you think they've exacerbated the problem do you think do you have any information that can shed
1: light on this so um if i remember correctly one of the complaints that was filed with the police was filed by uh, one of the girls who was um, named in the chat was part of. So I don't Mm -hmm. know. Again, we don't know whether the school took action based on whether the girls complained or the girls' parents complained or what has prompted the school into this sort of um, the need to take action. But the point is that the school did take action. On the whole, mm. I think there is a need for greater sex education and for better uh, communication between young girls and boys that's of course missing. Uh, but I, I actually wanted to raise a slightly related point, which is about why adults um, and adults who have children of their own or young people, like you said, who have gone through similar experiences, who have either been shamed in a, the same way or mm-hmm. have indulged in the same sort of behavior. Uh, why do the extreme? Why do they engage in such extreme reactions? This is a conversation I was having with a friend, and we realized that apart from the need to score social media points, which is that you know the more extreme your reaction, the more RTs you're going to get, the more likes you're going to get. I think yeah, we're going to really get into this
0: later in the episode. Okay, yeah. the things uh, people do with social media retweets. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, (laughs) uh, no, I mean, apart from the need to score social media brownie points, I think it's because of a lack of imagination to see things another way, Mm. which is that in order to believe in the idea that reform is the solution for young boys and young girls who engage in bad behavior, you need to be able to know that that is even a reality. And unfortunately, in a world like a post Delhi gang rape world, that sort of imagination is diminishing, isn't it?
0: Yeah exactly and I would even take it a step further um, and say that to me call out culture at large signals sort of like the the lack of feminist imagination that exists in this country Mm -hmm. in the sense that I think that in the absence of like a mass movement that entails Mm. direct action, making demands, you know really mobilizing women's energies when it comes to the harm men have done to them have mm. been frayed and dispersed and then it's kind of like social media has become this this um, this um platform for them to sort of channel their anger and frustration something that mm. could be sort of channeled in a more productive political way is just kind of churning itself in a cyclical fashion on social media because I think women lack a larger tangible cause to attach themselves to. I think that's the larger crisis of like the feminist movement in India. It is this very lack of imagination on what can women do with their anger, which is something a feminist movement has historically attempted to answer, right?
1: Uh, I think another related point to this whole anger thing that I'd like to add to is that I think um, total condemnation and asking for strict punishment has become equal to sort of saying that I don't stand for any sort of harassment or I don't stand for any sort of sexual violence. And I think conflating the two is extremely problematic. Because it means that you are seeing an adult rapist and a young person who has engaged in this sort of terrible behavior. I'm not saying that they're innocent or the fact that they allegedly created a second group to sort of like rebel against the fact that they were called out all of that is terrible behavior. But who has given these young boys the vocabulary to talk in this way? Rape culture has. It's not something they've imbibed by themselves. And if you're going to see an adult man who's committed a crime and a young boy who's engaged in this sort of awful behavior in the same way, then there's something wrong, right? Your reaction towards the two cannot be the same. Because they're not the exactly. same. Exactly. And and I think,
0: um, like, I one essay that really struck a chord with me was... Haramita essay mm, about mm. Boys Locker Room. And she mm. wrote a really thoughtful and incisive piece. But one mm. thing that really struck, stuck out to me that I wanted to like um, read out on the podcast was mm. when she said, um, the boys are competing for who can say dirtier things. The girls for how many people think they are hot. When it comes out, then it's victims and villains. It's also mechanical and about projection rather than being. The only language young people have is a second-hand one. And how can you find your own self when you are always speaking in someone's given language? And I think really this is where the responsibility of adults and those of us who are witnessing this go-down comes in. It's that we really now now need... I think this has forced adults to think about, okay, so the way that we are talking about, you know, the Me Too movement or the way Mm. we're talking about call-outs or... Punishment or all of these things—it's like it's like filtering down to minors. And when you sort of put it in the hands of minors, it is going to go on extreme levels because, like, I think we can all agree that we've become more patient, more level-headed, you know, as we've gotten older. So when you give something like this to kids who really are dealing with a whole matrix of, like, like I said, like intense emotions and high drama, Mm -hmm. like something like this can be potentially very dangerous. Which is why you had that incident of the boy committing suicide Hmm. you know Hmm. like you know Hmm. like high school in itself is such a stressful thing and then when you suddenly put this lens into it i can't imagine Hmm. the kind of damage it can do to young people
1: Hmm. i completely agree with you because i think um as someone who has reported on me too um for two years now i think that it's extremely difficult terrain to navigate. I don't have the answers to most questions that people ask me. And I don't know how a young person is supposed to navigate this, whether it is someone who is making the allegation, or it is someone who is at the receiving end of this allegation. And that the terrible, terrible news of the suicide of a 14-year-old has to wake us up to the fact that young people are not equipped to deal with it, whether it is making the allegation or being the subject of the allegation. Because there is so much shame, there is so much. Um, anger that follows you and as an adult maybe like as adults maybe men can deal with it maybe they can respond to it in responsible ways in mature ways but I don't know how we can expect young boys to respond to it. I also don't I I cannot put into words the amount of damage we have done by creating a world where young girls don't think that they can talk to their parents about this first where they don't think they can talk to their teachers about this first where they don't think that you know an adult or a guardian can take them to a police station and to say that, you know, hey, this terrible thing has happened to my child. Can you please help us, you know, and go through the right way? Because how awful have things become that girls aged between 16 and 18 are having to put this information out on social media. That is what really bothers to me. To
0: feel heard. Yeah. That's that's so true actually. Um and I think that what this has shown is that we haven't really given young girls or young boys, the tools to be able to deal with all of these, like, really sticky, like, terrible things, you know? Like, uh, and the fact is, is that we ourselves never really developed the tools to it, which is why we're doing such a <laughs> shit job of, like, telling young people what to do. Um, but, yeah, like, I do think that me, me... And by something like Me Too, I definitely don't want to diminish the role that something like Losha played because um, it did... Mm you know there have been call outs of people who frame Me Too as like the first phase and I Mm. definitely don't want us to make that mistake because Losha um did sort of do a similar thing and to me um was more effective because power dynamics were inherent in Losha because it was calling Mm. out like academics Mm. but um I, I think that something like Me Too has given us as young women, a kind of unsteady, unreliable model of justice and accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of now want to talk about like, what women who have, if you're comfortable sharing, mm-hmm. if you have spoken to women who have outed a man, what they've said about why they did it and how they feel after. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, I can't go into much detail and I can't name mm-hmm. the people who have spoken to me. But um, over the course of my reporting and other conversations, um, I have mostly come across uh, accounts of women who have not been able to talk about the terrible things that have happened to them before because they've not been heard, which is that they would go to like the HR of their company and the HR would not respond in the way they wanted because the person they were complaining against was extremely senior or um, their complaint would not be taken seriously at all because it was not seen as a complaint or that they'd be mm-hmm. failed by uh, the group of people they confided in and they hope that they would take some change. Um, that has happened to a lot of people. Uh, a lot of women are doing it for personal healing, which is that they feel that uh, because the people around them or the person they have accused has not allowed them to have their own version of events, which is that they've mm-hmm. been gaslit or they've been outright denied. The stories have not been received the way they wanted them to. They feel like it allows them to have a control over the narrative all over again and to say it in the words that they would like it to be heard. Uh, That's where a lot of the healing comes from. I think it also comes from just articulation of pain, which I think was the um, overarching theme of Me Too in 2018 and also the year previous when women weren't really naming men. There was an articulation of pain of things that had happened in the recent past and also the far away past that women had never put into words um uh, mm-hmm. so the reason for a call out can be many it can be centered in the self which is to do with healing it can do with articulations of pain about taking a grasp over the narrative um it can also be about the public nature of the call out like for example a few months ago uh, there was a conversation on twitter about this one man who um apparently had a habit of um, getting in touch with queer women and then finding out details about their private life and trying to sort of, you know, um, crossing a line. And he did this um, not once but twice. And then I think the third time when he sort of re-emerged on Twitter after two previous call-outs, one woman pointed out that, you know, he keeps changing his handle and he keeps coming back. So in this case, a lot of people... Like in in cases similar to this, a lot of people think that the public nature of a call out means that it's like an open whisper club to a certain extent. I'm not sure if I'm making sense, like an open whisper network where everybody knows that, (laughs) you know, this person is to be, you should be wary of this person. So that is also one nature of call out culture, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to actually like, it's like a public whisper network, right? Where Hmm. you're kind of like exchanging private information Hmm. um but through sort of more public channels hmm. um and you're not and it might not be something as you know heavy as like a sending you to jail or whatever but it is sort of like a warning like the goal hmm. of that is a necess- you know it is like a warning to other women it doesn't really necessarily entail punitive have punitive con- connotations
1: in such um, cases i don't think it's aimed at the um, so-called perpetrator at all it's meant to be more about warning other women about his behavior Which has occurred in previous
0: cases, yeah. No, and I mean, I think that you find this behavior is rife on social media. I think, you know, men have really figured out a way to be like pests on social media. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important for women to be vigilant about that, um, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, so you made this point about, you know... This has exposed us to how reactions, like when it when this happens to like boys, like minor boys or mm-hmm. boys who are just above, you know, eighteen, just about being, you know, above eighteen. Like mm-hmm. w- this kind of really forces us to think about our reactions to these cases and to. So I wanted to ask you, like, should the reaction to minor boys be different as opposed to reactions against adult men? I just wanted to get like your your thoughts on this, like clearly.
1: So um, in terms of a sociological phenomenon, I can't comment on this enough because I don't know enough. And my Mm -hmm. personal opinion is that it should be reformatory because we can't discard off 17, 18, 16 year old boys from society and shun them because they did something like this and say that they're incapable of change. Because I Mm -hmm. want to believe in a society where these boys are capable of change and we are trying our best to reform them. I also think that it's important to take into consideration the fact that the girls around them should feel safe. So it should be made adequately clear that such behavior won't be tolerated. Um, I don't know how that gets articulated in the real world, again, because I don't know enough. But I think taking the girl's safety and their uh, state of mind into consideration is also important. Also because the nature of the crime is it's so easy to replicate, right? To make another group Mm -hmm. and sort of begin in, like, indulging in this behavior again. But like I said, I don't know enough about it as a sociological phenomenon to comment on it. I can comment as a journalist. Um, I think that, um, and I would go to the extent of saying that this should probably apply to um, adult men as well. I don't think journalism should replicate the culture of shame that exists on social media. I think we should be doing our job as journalists ourselves. We should be asking both sides for um, their um, thoughts on the subject. We should be asking both sides for quotes. We should be interrogating them in a similar manner. Um, mm-hmm. We should wait for all the facts to emerge before making a judgment. For example, I'm, I'm sorry I'm taking the conversation back to Boys Locker Room, but uh, I came across this thread a few days uh, after the allegations came uh, up on social media. And uh, in this uh, thread, there were screenshots of a conversation which allegedly took place between one of the boys in Boys Locker Room and a boy who had left the group. And this boy who mm-hmm. left the group was wondering about how these boys could talk in such a terrible manner. And I think it was hinted that these boys have actually raped a girl who was a minor. Uh, they got her drunk and then they raped her and so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. the conversation got extremely like violent and Graphic. all sorts of shaming. And, um, yeah. and apparently that was the reason why the boy who was confronting the member was saying that this is why I left the group. Now if you consider the entire narrative of boys' locker room, this fits into that narrative. It doesn't seem surprising. But then Mm -hmm. within minutes, we realized that this was a fake conversation because um, people who were cautious enough found out and they realized that this is not what Instagram DMs look like. And they pointed this out and the person who put out the thread took it down. The point is in that moment, over the course of one hour that the thread was up, people had already made their judgments. Um, Yeah. And uh, the boy's real name was used. So that means that a certain amount of um, vilification had already taken place Mm -hmm. and uh, not to mention all of the people who have had past similar experiences of this nature who must have been triggered and for no reason. So um, it's important for us to ensure that we wait for all the facts to emerge, especially in those cases where as media persons, we can't fully verify um, the veracity of evidence. So we should be waiting for a larger authority to kind of pass a judgment about that before we sort of start framing our narratives.
0: Yeah. Um, so I have two questions hmm. right, for you and um, in response to this and you can choose how you want to answer them, which order, whatever. Hmm. But the first is like, um, what kind of pressures do you think journalists face? Hmm. When doing reporting about Me Too, considering hmm. that you know social media is a place where things change constantly, hmm. and because journalists have an increased dependence on social media, you know, to get hmm. their work out, hmm. um, do you think that there's sort of this pressure journalists face that they have to report on things as they happen, and especially report on things of this nature? Because you know, in this era of believe women, I'm just wondering whether it might be tougher for journalists to ask certain questions or to engage with things in, in, a, through, in a more critical, analytical lens. Um, mm. Like, have you ever faced any, like, judgment or, like, any people, like, trying to frame you as problematic for doing that, which is basically, like, doing your job? And the mm. second thing I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, you mentioned something about how these journalists was, uh, a lot of uh, news outlets and journalists were sort of taking to social media without, you know, due diligence. Mm. And what do you think the focus... You know, of journalists and media houses should be um, Mm -hmm. to to, you know to ensure that they respect this movement if that is where their priorities lie, but Mm -hmm. also make sure that they don't sort of fall into this nature of just like reporting on things on the fly. But -hmm. like, are there any power brokers, companies like? What should if you do? You think the media should be focusing on something else? Rather Mm -hmm. than always just talking about he said, she said and getting into that and Mm -hmm. maybe start thinking about like which companies have ICC set up, like which companies have failed to investigate, like looking at things more through that lens rather than Mm -hmm. like what is happening on Twitter, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I'm going to answer the first question, which is about Believe Women and um, how do you do your due diligence and what is driving uh, journalists to whatever pursue stories in this manner, I think believe women as a reporter, that is I'm saying, uh, believe women has to do with considering women's accounts. It means listening to them, listening to them objectively, um, and letting them, you know, frame the narrative in the way that they seem most comfortable. To me, it doesn't mean um, putting 100% faith into the subject because as a journalist, I would not do that to anybody. I think Mm -hmm. it's important to raise here the question of bad faith actors. I don't mean that women are lying, but I think that we cannot at any given point in journalism um, negate the existence of bad faith actors. Now those people may be doing it for whatever reason, and I'm not going to comment on that. Um, But you cannot deny the existence of bad faith actors, it's going to happen. That's just how society is. So believe women means that you have to consider people's accounts, investigate them. Um, and do it objectively and not begin out a story by saying okay I don't believe this woman because the person who's named is someone who's famous or well liked or whatever that is my take on the issue Um, the second thing you talked about was about um, why journalists and why newsrooms are functioning the way they are currently and why they're reporting that way Uh, I don't think it is as much to do with keeping up with social media as much as keeping up with social media trends and google trends which means that if boys locker room uh, becomes a google trend because so many people want to read about it a newsroom is uh, sort of forced to um, put up a report about it. Now, um, this trending may start at a time when the information is incomplete. But if you have to keep up with the race, then I think newsrooms are, um, they feel compelled to do it. So that Mm -hmm. is what I think prompts people into putting out half information or information that is not completely verified. A good journalist would wait for all the facts to emerge before putting together a story
0: yeah um, and do you have anything in like that has made you uncomfortable like how do you think that journalists should act? I mean I think you you outlined how you would approach these things, but do you think there has been there's difference within the community about how to deal with these kinds of things and
1: have you noticed that as far as I know, um, there have been differences I guess in the kind of stories we should pursue as in is this allegation important enough to follow? Or, um, if this is anonymous, should we be following it? Uh, personally, I would say that if it's an anonymous allegation, you try to get in touch with the person, you ask them if they want to talk to you. If they don't want to talk to you, there is nothing you can do about it. Um, in terms of, I don't think there are many more differences. More or less, everybody functions in the same way. I just wish that we would stop giving into Google trends and like social media trends and wait for stories to organically play out so that we could follow them in the best possible way. Uh, you asked a very interesting question, which is about um, asking the important questions and um, whether that is seen as you know as not being ethical or overstepping a boundary. I think it's very simple. You ask as many questions as you can and as many as are relevant. Um, it can make the other person uncomfortable, there's no doubt about it, because you're. there can be a re-victimization because they're going back to their trauma and they're recalling it for your purpose. And um, reliving those memories can be painful, but if it's important to your story, you do it. And um, the larger point that I think I'm trying to make is that reporting and journalism should go into those corners that social media cannot. When someone is um, airing an allegation or putting out their account of what has happened to them, and the accused um, responds to it, there's going to be a lot of loopholes. There's going to be a lot of information that is missing. And a reporter's mm-hmm. job should be to go into those um, gaps and to try to fill them up with information, to try to find out what's missing, to um, see why, if the accused is denying it, why are they denying it? Um, how does this look in the from the legal perspective? So all of these are questions that um, the reporter should definitely follow. You also asked a question about uh, whether it is worth following he said, she said um, sort of examples. Uh, I think I, I'm a little undecided about this sort of thing because so much of what has emerged on, uh, in me too is he, he said, he she, she said, she said, but um, mm-hmm. I think if it, if it is emblematic of a larger phenomenon, it is important, right? Like if it is about boss employee, then that is important because um, it could be possible that there are other women from the organization who might have similar complaints. Or it could be a form of behavior in an industry, like it could be like um, casting in Bollywood. So in those cases, I think if it is emblematic of a larger behavior, then maybe he said, she said is of value. Yeah. No, I definitely
0: think he said, he said (laughs) this is like a tongue twister. He said, she said. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Is is of and because that is the nature of all allegations, right? Which Mm. which a man is going to say, you know, yes, I did this.
1: Mm -hmm. you know like
0: so uh, that is the nature of all of it but I kind of meant that journalists don't fall prey to exactly what you said which is sort of like the trend cycle Mm. Um, but sort of moving on I had another question um, Mm. and it's I've always like wondered you know when someone posts something like an anonymous screenshot or puts a name in an excel sheet Mm. um, how is that like how do you verify that is evidence? Like, can standards be? You know, like, if people aren't willing to come out with their names and like details and even detail what happened to them, you know, Hmm. in you know, are just going to say, okay, this guy is a creep, or this guy Hmm. is a sexual harasser. Like, just kind of make these statements. Hmm. Um, Does that really make your job harder as someone who I'm sure is invested in you know getting women's stories out there? and making sure that you know women aren't dismissed and women are heard. Mm -hmm. does that kind of make your job harder
1: Um, on a personal level I don't think um, it makes sense to include completely anonymous allegations which I mean that I don't mean that their identity is anonymous on social media or something or that they want anonymity within the article I mean if they're not willing to share their identity with me then I don't know where the circle of accountability starts and stops. How Mm -hmm. do I even know that this person is a woman? How do I even know that this person is a real person? So uh, there I'm really wary. I don't know if such accounts are to be believed or whether even if I want to believe them as a person, as a woman, I don't know if I want to venture into it as a journalist. Um, Mm -hmm. That is one part of your question. What was the other part? that there is, you know, it is difficult to
0: verify information. You, huh, you and spoke
1: about uh, verification of screenshots. So the thing is, I've not actually mm-hmm. dealt with this sort of screenshot email um, thing. Most of the cases that I did report on were about um, in-person interactions. So I'm mm. not, unfortunately, in a place to be able to comment about something like this. But I'm guessing that running it by an IT expert, trying to figure out the veracity of the screenshot, these things are important. Because, uh, like the Snapchat thing showed or um, the fake thread that I just talked about, it's so easy to fall into these traps and it's important that um, we don't because there'll be an obfuscation of the truth if we do.
0: So, kind of moving from like a journalist ability, like journalism, you know, disseminating information to Hmm. I think journalism cementing people's like brands and profiles, I really wanted to ask you about Hmm. whether there are people who have, about people who frame themselves um, on the front lines of the Me Too movement, and Mm -hmm. these are the people who are like, what you could say the conduits there were the people who were Hmm. posting screenshots of accounts women had shared with them etc um did you like when did like did you start a clock that there was a point in which people were really trying to um center themselves in this movement and like what are your thoughts on this
1: okay Uh, i think this is a complicated sort of issue because journalists themselves can engage in it um Mm -hmm. which is that you know you become like the Me Too reporter of your organization or you become one of the few reporters known for their Me Too coverage and um, this sort of um, popularity that kind of follows this sort of work, um, it's easy to fall into that trap. Uh, The way to desist from it I think is to say that it's happening because of trauma that's happened to others. Uh, And that's where I think I sort of draw the line that it's terrible that like your body of work is built on, like you're known for this because something terrible happened to someone else. Coming to the question, I think that um, the framing of some people as the people who started the movement or who were at the head of the movement, that happened partially because of the nature of the movement itself, right? A lot of women didn't want to post their accounts from their own um, social media profiles. So they decided to go through these women as conduits. And I'm not going to deny the fact that there's a lot of labor involved in it. There's a lot of mental strain involved in it. There is a certain amount of accountability and responsibility because defamation cases are filed right like all the time against such people. So um, I'm not going to deny the fact that that labor is real, putting out those allegations is real. Um, all of that involves a lot of work, but I'm a little wary of this, um, this n- sort of calling yourself like the founder of a movement because you're doing this work because it means that you're standing on the trauma of so many other people so i'm i'm not sure I, this is like this is very complicated yeah it I also I just about it. it's it also just ascribe
0: someone with a virtuousness that they might not deserve like then it also kind of makes someone it also it's someone saying that okay you aren't allowed to say anything to me because bitch like without me this would not have happened like be mm-hmm. grateful for me be thankful to me I think it very easily can like shift into that which I think a lot of people who are at the helm of movements that you know when they are the ones who are being interviewed when they're the ones whose faces and names get attached to it I think that level of entitlement and that level of like kind of personality worship mm-hmm. does begin to seep in of like, oh, like, be grateful to me, you know? Um, Adisa, and I, I, I
1: definitely... I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. Um, huh? uh, you actually mentioned something that I think is very pertinent to this point, which is that who is making these people... Uh, who's ascribing them this value, right? Part exactly, of history, that was of the like, about the role
0: of journalists. So yeah, yeah very
1: like very weird, like, circle joke thing going on where... Um, it's also about how we choose to frame this movement. Should we be making this a democratic thing? Should we be making it as a sort of, there's a legion of women, but there's like four people at the front. How are we doing this? So I don't think the I don't think this narrative starts and stops at who is at the start of the movement, but also about how we choose to frame it as journalists and as people who are part of the movement. I think that has to do with it. The other thing I wanted to talk about, um, and I'd love to know your opinion on this um, is about how we ascribe um, expertise to people, which is that does right. someone become an expert at something related to sexual violence and violence against women because of lived experience, because of research and work, because of reportage, because they um, have helped out someone. I don't know, this is, I, this is something that I consider shaky ground. Because someone like Suheila Abdul Ali has written a whole book about it, but hers is not based solely on lived experience. It's based on research. It's based on conversations with people. So I think that is a question we really need to consider, which is how do we ascribe expertise to people? there's expertise that is gained through
0: academia and research Mm -hmm. and there's expertise that is gained through lived experience but I think this question really targets like the crux of like the identity politics problem where Mm. a lot of people on social media say because I'm of x and x identity you know I have more right to speak to you than this my access to truth is higher than yours I'm more authentic than you are and referring to this particular issue I don't know like is there a way to acknowledge that someone has expertise without making them the be all and end all I guess Mm. that's the problem I have, where I feel like it's okay to be like, okay, like X person played a a vital role in getting a lot of women's testimonies out there, Mm. but do not let that person then hijack the movement. Mm -hmm. But I think that in this particular context, um, I wish there wasn't this attendant, like this, this this thing of okay this person is at the forefront of the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and so this person is now going to get like uh, uh, get to do be featured on Twitter like some Twitter ad or this person is be going to be called by media houses to be a spokesperson of it
1: mm-hmm. you know or
0: this random 19 year old who like you know posted a bunch of screenshots on Twitter is now being interviewed by you know some lifestyle wing of a, of a newspaper to mm-hmm. talk about you know being an mm-hmm. activist I think it's things like that that I have a problem with where mm. ex- where what are the foundations of that expertise mm-hmm. I do think there needs to be an overarching sense of like um, what is a, more, a responsible and accountable way for someone to behave if they are going to be at the forefront of something or mm-hmm. if they are someone who has taken on more of like the workload or has done more work in it there still needs to be that level of accountability um, so I'm kind of struggling with this but I think what you asked really gets really is like the craps of like the identity politics problem and how seriously it should be taken.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sorry, like I didn't say anything. Right. No, yeah.
1: no, I think the reason why I asked you this, I'm sorry, I'm dragging this point on is that I think it, it brings me back to the question of democracy and democracy movements like this, mm-hmm. because um, the people who can put out um, accounts, they're doing it at their own personal expense. But what is their identity? What is their privilege? You know, things like that. Or oh, um, yeah, yeah. Or in terms of if we're going to look back at Me Too, and if someone has to do an interview, and they need uh, someone who has expertise, who are they going to call? Is it going to be someone who has lived experience? Or is it going to be someone who can reflect back on the movement with both lived experience and expertise? You know, these are just I'm just saying these questions are important when we try to frame movements. Are we doing them democratically? Exactly. Are we doing them based on what are what is our basis for answering these I questions? Guess that is why I guess my
0: for, for me it was like the problem solver. Like to me that is someone who I would go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would go to the person who has either done work on you know reform and how to work with you know men and boys or even women who have been uh, who mm-hmm. have you know accused of sexual harm um, or I would go to someone who knows a lot about ICC and knows a lot about you know due process in workplaces mm-hmm. um, I would go to people who are sort of part of the solution rather, th- rather yeah. than people who just continuously keep framing the problem mm-hmm. um, because okay. I think it's very easy to keep framing a problem um, I think you know I think that sort of exhausts itself mm-hmm. and in terms of I would, and I think in terms of expertise, I would go to people not who have gained currency through social media, Mm. um, but have done something outside of social media. You know, Mm. who have maybe decided that, okay, now I'm going to organize female workers in my profession, in my industry, Mm. or, you know, know, like things like that, or a therapist who has said, you know, now I'm going to think about how therapists can come together and we can all Mm. think about how to help women and how Mm. to counsel men. You know, mm-hmm. like, people who, like I said, are part of this solution and have done something off of social media. Because mm-hmm. as someone who has called out men, like, I know you said that there is that sense of, like, bravery attached to it. But mm-hmm. quite frankly, like, calling a man out on social media is, like, the easiest thing I've ever done. It's, like, the mm-hmm. easiest thing you, c- a woman can do is that. So in terms of, like, the amount of bravery required, I'm sure there's a certain amount. But within that Within that spectrum of an action a woman can take, social media callouts are um, often the sort of least disruptive for a woman's life. So I think women also have to develop that awareness that I you don't know what happens I completely on social. Agree. Yeah,
1: I mean I understand what you're saying about the um, ascribing of courage to that act. I completely mm-hmm. get it. But I I think I've heard about too many defamation cases in the last like two years. To I mean I'm saying that that is a that is a loss that you're going to face and that is a re- that is a reality that you know there is very likely going to be a defamation case against you especially if the man that a, who you're speaking against yeah. is powerful enough so i i don't know where i stand on this whole courage thing i think i'm going to disagree with you
0: yeah i mean i but that that could have happened irrespective of how the woman what avenue the woman chose right like that defamation case that is intrinsic to her calling a man out on social media I think that's kind of what I'm getting at is that a lot of the retaliation women face, they would have faced anyway. Um, and to me, like, like what's tougher is like going to your company and being like, you know, this guy did this to me and like having to provide evidence and having to answer for myself and account for my you know what I was doing and all of that, and having to confront the guy and having the guy know that this is what she's saying about you and doing that face to face kind of thing. you know um, versus posting it on social media where you can choose the level to which you want to be visible you know Mm -hmm. how much you want to foreground yourself in all of this Um, so I do think that social media allows women this is what I'm going to say I'm not going to say it's the easiest but I think social media allows women to negotiate the level you know to negotiate the parameters of their accusations and the act of making an accusation more than any other form does more than filing a police complaint more than going to a company and I think that kind of like that kind of negotiation Mm -hmm. does confer a certain level of like ease onto the act you know yes. what I mean? Like the fact that I that that's kind of my point. Like I know that I tend to say things in a very like stark <laughs> way, but, but like um, that that is what I meant by saying that it is the easiest way. Just because I think that it is it is the way in which you can you can do something without follow through, without the you the know without the intention of follow through. Huh,
1: the only reason I hmm. want to sort of uh, register my disagreement at this point is because uh, say for example if you look at uh, the artwork. I don't know um, uh, what your workplace looks like, but mine is extremely liberal in terms of listening to women and allowing them Mm to uh, file complaints and stuff like that. So this sort of culture where women can't even talk about how bad their bosses are is completely alien to me. So Mm -hmm. um, when I heard about the art world and how these complaints and these allegations cannot even be aired because you can risk losing your job, you can risk... um, losing money and all of that extremely scary proposition which means that there is no ready environment for women to talk then women exactly. realize that you know this has been happening for years and then whatever they set up a account where they decide to talk about these allegations and they have to be anonymous because that is the price of like airing these allegations right you can't put your face to it because you will lose work you will lose money you will your reputation will be reduced to nothing And then you're taken to court by an artist who has taken umbrage to the fact that you have, um, aired an allegation. So these are loss, loss kind of situations. And, you know, I think, I mean, mean, your point stands, but such examples go against it, which is that women have tried every possible avenue, found that it has failed, then taken to social media, found that that has also failed. So, yeah, I I guess I'm,
0: I I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more about people for whom social media is the first point of airing something out mm. okay, okay. Uh, you know like I think that's kind of and I think that largely is my concern about me too in the sense that I know that it has done great and productive things um, mm. especially and the most productive thing it's done is tell women that this shit is not okay you know, mm-hmm. and that this this is a widespread problem. So that next time you come out with something that X and X man did this to me, it'll be like, yeah, like this industry does have this problem. We know that this this kind of thing has a precedent of playing mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes it easier for me to frame my own experience because it has mm-hmm. given women that vocabulary, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my concern though is that is, and I think you share this. I'm sure you share this. Is that social media call outs then replace? something like what we would call due process where woman is not thinking mm. then about you know how can I hold this man to account she's thinking I will post social media Twitter and I will shame him and mm. I think and I'm not blaming and I'm not like trying to be like oh this is your problem you know women you're, you're, you're fucked up and you have to get this man and you're like a feminazi whatever mm. I'm saying that this is the natural way that I see things going mm-hmm. if we aren't right now checking call out culture
1: mm-hmm. I think call out
0: culture is going to be the de facto mechanism through which women Mm -hmm. air out their grievances against the man to the Mm. extent to which call me out on this push back to the extent to which women are basically flattening the range of sexual violences and thinking that even airing out that a man sent them a dick pic is something that should be is something that should be addressed on a thing like social media Mm. you know like the fact that something like that which doesn't really have to do with workplace dynamics it could be like a friend group it could be a man you went on a date with things that Mm. are things that maybe could be resolved privately, things that may never have even have a resolution and it's something you have to live with, you know, mm-hmm. which is the unfortunate reality for most of us with anything that's happened to us. Mm-hmm. And that there is no resolution, you know, to, to to how any of this can be solved. It is just your own healing and your own process, a private process. Mm-hmm. Suddenly this private process is now being pushed into the public, on social media, and is everyone is witnessing it and voyeuristically participating in your shitty date five years ago, or the yeah. fact that this guy sent you a dick pic, or the fact that you, two was, you were sexting with this guy, like yeah. suddenly these things become part of uh, the conversation. And I think that is where my fear is, that A, my first fear is that, call that culture is going to replace due process and mechanisms mm-hmm. that have been put in place to ensure that accountability is, you know, assigned and enacted, and two, that call out culture is going to be basically just turned into a free-for-all where any act of harm is mistaken or conflict is framed as abuse. And it is then done, you know, mediated online through social media and not through private channels, which I personally think are better for a woman when it comes to things like this guy sent this to me or this guy sent that to me. Like, mm-hmm. I, think it, it's, it's hel- I think it's healthy for women to think about how they can resolve these things you know, in a different way rather than going to social media because I don't think in these cases social media helps.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah. A lot of things you have thrown at me. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I'm going to start with uh, this thing about um, call-out culture versus... um, due process. This is something that I spoke about on Twitter and people got a little upset. And um, basically what I said was that uh, I think call out culture is becoming an end in itself as opposed to the means that it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a means to sort of talk about how due process is broken, how um, every manifestation of due process, whether it is ICCs, HR departments, um, the friends and social circle that you confide in, or um, justice systems, uh, legal systems, Uh, police authorities, all of this all of this is broken at different levels in varying proportions um, which is what has led to this culture where women are forced to come to social media to air their grievances to talk about the terrible things that have happened to them. This is what call out culture was supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a sort of emotion charged response to the broken ways of due process but I think there is a there is a problem when the end is become, like the means has become an end in itself. When people are not even willing to consider that, okay, maybe I should look at due process. Which is kind of sort of what happened in boys' locker room, right? And I'm, I'm not going to blame the person that started sharing those screenshots. Maybe she felt compelled to do it that way. She's also probably very young. So she, I mean, I'm not going to judge her in any way. Not I at think all, it yeah. is the, I think it's the fault of society around her that has created an environment where she feels the need to do this. That she's not mm-hmm. gone to a teacher and said, mere so mm-hmm. we need to look deep within and try to understand why we're not even using due process as a, an option in certain cases. Because how do you work on bettering due process if you're going to shun it entirely? The thing though, I think is that we need to look at both like um, simultaneously that I, I, I don't think that we can give up call out culture immediately. It should, it will be useful as long as it remains useful. So I'm not mm-hmm. condemning it for existing. I'm not saying that it's wrong. It has its issues, sure, but it's useful. It's especially useful when it calls attention, when it calls the attention of due process to cases where due process, you know, put its hands up. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to deny that call out culture is extremely important to our broken culture as it exists, but we cannot stop using due process as an avenue as much as is possible. At least we should, we should be trying at the very least is what I think. You were saying something. Okay.
0: Yeah, um, I think the benefit I find of due process, and I want to be specific. By due process, I mean, you know, if I, I don't necessarily mean like the police or bringing lawyers into the mix because mm. I understand that that can be an extremely damaging experience and expensive, and you know, available to only certain, you know, a certain privileged group of women. Mm. Um, I'm 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 talking about the importance of like ICCs, you know investigation committees at Mm. your at your workplace Mm. um and obviously this only applies to situations that this only applies to harassment faced at the workplace or by someone you work with which is Mm. why I even say that if someone you date has have gone on a date with like did something to you five years ago I don't think personally I would advise I would I would advise a friend to to bring that up on social media because there is no solution for the pain you're in and mm-hmm. if anything, it's just going to magnify whatever you're feeling. Mm-hmm. But um, like in these situations, I think the I like I think really like seeing the ICC as a productive way for women's complaints to a have an, to have an impact, and I think it can be something that can be very um that, that I think if ICCs are empowered and built the right way, mm-hmm. it can be something that is very therapeutic for a woman. Mm-hmm. Because it basically is giving you a chance to say what you want to say. Mm-hmm. Is giving you a committee that is listening to you. Is mm-hmm. giving you a chance to even confront your the person who did this against you in a supportive av- environment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. is offering some kind of mechanism for justice or accountability. That mm-hmm. does not include something as severe as you know, Pasi milegi is ladke ko you know or this person will be shunned Mm -hmm. there is a certain um there is a certain understanding of the kind of punishment that should be you know enacted against a man who has done x and x Mm -hmm. so it's it's it to me it seems like a a a way of sort of moderating the pain women are going through um and having a woman go through Having a woman access some kind of closure to her experience, which is something mm. that I do not think social media offers. Mm. Like, if I I don't know what women who a year from now outed a man mm. are going to say about how much that really helped them, because I know that in situations I have done that, it has not helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have really, it might have assuaged that part of me at that point that was angry and felt like I wanted vengeance but then when Mm. you see that same man just create another twitter account or that same man you know inch his way in back into social media you realize it's futile you know there's Mm. no point because people men are going to find their way back and there's no way you can actually ever totally punish a man um that is equal to how much anger you feel and nor should there be like Mm. you know like women's anger is not is not something that People are, just because I feel angry does not mean that the quantum of punishment against a man should be equal to the amount of anger I face. It mm. should be about, it should be a more objective process and I think ICCs have that and mm. well-functioning ICCs should mm. have that thing where they are a therapeutic experience for a woman while also ensure you know, while also ensuring that a woman can experience closure mm. that okay this has been dealt with.
1: Um, I, I think I have a couple of thoughts about this. The first is mm. that my problem with um, me too becoming a sort of justice seeking or justice system in itself is that um, there is no consideration for um, the quantum of punishment, which is the magnitude to which someone should be punished because they did something wrong. Because mm-hmm. um, the same amount of shame seems to overlap people irrespective of. Um, the gravity of the situation I think in most cases there is an overlapping of shame there is a sort of um, shunning the person asking that they lose their job things like that there are calls Mm -hmm. for all of these things the police is tagged blah 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 all of this happens so there's no organized response to the call out usually which I think is a problem Um, and that is where due process needs to sort of step in and sort of say that okay this is what the misbehavior was this is what the reaction should it uh, to it should be and then you know like you said the person who accused the um, perpetrator gets a sense of closure so that is one of the main issues i have with call out culture that the outcomes are not organized in any way i don't think they were meant to be in the first place which is something that many people have explained to me um, I basically tried to sort of, I thought about this for two years now. And what I realized is that collar culture was supposed to be um, survivor centric. This is something that someone has very patiently, thankfully explained to me that it should be survivor centric, that it is supposed to be about an articulation of pain, about healing or whatever it is, the survivor feels is necessary and how they feel they should process this emotion and it should be centered on them. The unfortunate bit is that the world doesn't end there, right? This is what my thought was, that the world doesn't end there. In fact, the um, turning of the wheel starts over there. That's when people start, you know, saying, calling the perpetrator things, calling the survivor things, making judgments about what should happen to the perpetrator, making judgments about whether the victim's account is even a legitimate account or not. So, somewhere this need to focus on the survivor to give her space to heal, To allow her to frame the narrative the way she wants to has sort of it somewhere it stops being about that and starts becoming about what do we do with this man which is such a complicated question and social media is not equipped to deal with it
0: exactly and and I think that also like the one thing that strikes me is like so like funny is that people are like okay like social media is a safe space like Mm. wait no like social media is like the opposite of a safe space like Mm. like what is this idea that like twitter is like a safe place for women to come out with like i'm like no twitter is like a cesspool of like fucking maniacs and assholes like what like what is this you know like i just like i'm like it doesn't it doesn't like it doesn't align with my idea of what i think social media is more so that social Mm. media forget the people on social media social media is also just like Twitter is a corporation that is basically mining your personal life. And is like people assume that, okay, like Twitter is this neutral thing. And I said mm. this on the first episode um, of this podcast, when we were mm. talking about um, uh, AIB and like, um, and the same thing about call culture and social media was being discussed. I was like, people assume that um, Twitter and Facebook, Facebook and all these social media platforms are like neutral safe spaces when Mm -hmm. actually they're like massive corporations that are mining your data and um, you know that there's nothing like, there's nothing principled about them offering like a space for survivors the same way that Twitter tried to hijack whatever the Arab Spring was and say that you know the Arab Spring Mm. happened thanks to you know uh, activists organizing on Twitter you know Mm. this idea that Twitter can claim that it's providing a safe space for survivors and that survivors can rely on Twitter as a safe space when you know when it's concurrently a platform that silences you know Kashmiris
1: you know, like, I just find no, I that. I totally agree with you. I it's, like, you know? it's it's a dubious yeah. claim also because, I mean, I'm not even going to get into a complicated enough argument that you have. I'm going to come to the very simple argument that um, if someone accuses me of something and if I rally you and a few other people with a lot of followers to um, report the person or to report the tweet, the tweet could disappear. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm. Like, it it's, it's it boils down to something as simple as that, right? Like, if enough number of people report the person who's complained against me, that person mm-hmm. will have to take their account down or whatever, their tweet will disappear, whatever it is will happen. So, I think the claim that Twitter is where you can gain a sense of justice is extremely dubious. But there is one point I wanted to make, which is that um, I understand where you're coming from about... Um, what deserves a call-out, what doesn't deserve a call-out, which experience deserves to be aired out in the open and stuff. Um, The thing is, I believe that it should be a survivor-led thing, which means Mm -hmm. that they get to decide um, what fits into this narrative, what doesn't fit into this narrative, what should they speak about, what should they not speak about. And Mm -hmm. um, in that vein, I think they should get to decide what they feel. Because we're already at this point in culture where Uh, And society where we feel like, you know, we're constantly telling ourselves, no, this is not something bad that happened to me. No, it just had to happen. Or we're constantly at like, we're debating with ourselves whether something bad that happened to us was legitimate or not. So maybe I would, Mm -hmm. my personal faith, like belief is that we should leave it to the survivor to decide that. Um, Mm. It's more on the rest of us to kind of decide, you know, whether this is something you would support, whether you would not support it. But a survivor should get her space to say whatever she wanted. The thing I do want to say is that um, if it is something personal, like you said, um, Mm -hmm. if it has to do with something that happened in a relationship or a friendship or something, I think there is, again, a need to look within and try to understand if you should be speaking to this person personally before airing it on social media. If such an avenue is not available because that person has blocked you, because you have blocked them, because you cannot have a conversation with them, because whatever happened to you was violent or terrible or whatever I Mm -hmm. get that but if there is an avenue to talk about it I think maybe that conversation should be breached another thing that I realized um, and I learned while doing a piece on defamation is um, in the me too um, sphere of things is that there are mediators they belong to the legal profession there are several well-known ones in India as well who will be willing to mediate without taking things to court Which means that if Mm -hmm. I have a problem with you, I involve a mediator, you will possibly have to involve a lawyer. And then we kind of sit down and discuss what happened and, you know, figure out a way around it. So outside of the ICC situation, which you discussed, and it's very important, ICCs, I don't think workplaces should function without them. It is Mm -hmm. possible to also use mediators. In personal mm-hmm. situations. So it's not like something that's not available to people. It is available to people. Which just means that we have to extend our imagination beyond what currently it is.
0: Yeah, and I think that there's a certain reckoning that needs to happen with women, which was a very tough reckoning for me too. For me, me too. Me, when <laughs> this was, when this is, um, uh, you know, it's, it's that often... Th- the unfortunate situation that we are in is is that if you have been at the receiving end of like sexual violence or harassment or whatever like there is no closure to be found anywhere except within yourself
1: Mm -hmm. and that
0: isn't to say there's victim shaming that's victim shaming but you can go down any avenue that you want to but that kind of like spiritual emotional sense of closure Mm -hmm. um, is a very private process of healing Mm-hmm. It is not something that I think others should be made privy to, and I think it might even be like a process of self sabotage. Mm-hmm. It might even be a way to like make that period last even longer, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm thi- and I'm saying this from a place of like deep empathy for women who are going through this. I have felt so much anger in my life against certain men and Mm -hmm. it could be like remember when I I read things like oh this guy sent me a dick pic and people like being really like about sexting I'm like wait like I'm pretty sure all the women I know have been through way worse things than this Mm -hmm. but like but like the reason why we aren't airing them out is because there has been a certain level of work done Mm -hmm. to sort of overcome Mm -hmm. these experiences privately if you're someone who's not a carceral feminist if you're someone who doesn't believe in a punitive form of justice and if there are currently any, there aren't avenues of reform for men. Ultimately, all you have to do is like strengthen yourself, improve your instincts and kind of move on and think about your life beyond that, you know? Like that is, like unfortunately, that is the truth that I think many many women are going to arrive to. Like I think a lot of women that I know have arrived.
1: To, I think you know? uh, uh, I think I agree with the whole thing you said about, you know, how um, eventually closure is a personal journey. Um, mm-hmm. I, I fully get that and I think that is how I mean, we're constantly in a state of healing because we're constantly in a state of hurting. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's, well it's not put. possible to um, air every grievance, but there is something I wanted to bring up would love to know what you think about it. Uh, I think call out culture has a public memory to it, which, um, like you said, call out culture is also, uh, it's not ended well for a lot of women because the men they named uh, finally were reinstated. They were given back their jobs, they have come back to public life, so on and so forth, and their lives haven't technically been changed by the call-out. But Mm -hmm. I wonder if public memory and the fact that you have articulated this thing and it has somewhere to a certain extent entered public memory. I wonder with that whether that has value, you know. Because of course, especially if you're complaining against someone who is extremely famous, they're very likely to, you know, get back into the industry that they're from and go back to that position of power they belong to and this is true also of the process but I wonder if the public articulation of trauma whether that has value in itself you know. Yeah I mean hmm, I would say
0: that that does have value to the extent that people can never use the excuse that they didn't know hmm, you know
1: hmm, hmm, like ultimately
0: it's that because then you can start holding then you know exactly who the enablers are.
1: Hmm, hmm, you know hmm.
0: you know like because before maybe you weren't able to tell like this person is enabling this man but you were in your head like okay maybe this person didn't know Hmm, hmm. and I think that really is um and I think that really is like the benefit of this is that we're kind of now seeing like society shift between people Hmm. who you know are willing to um creating a situation that is conducive for a man to come back without him having to be reckoned with what he has done yeah. And that is what, those are like the enablers, right? Like, That's and I now see. you're kind of seeing like people are being able to make those distinctions more clear, clearly. And I think that clarity is really fruitful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my point about, my point about was when you said, you know, the person explained to you that it was survivor focus and you should think mm-hmm. about the well-being of the survivors. My point was, yeah, like, is this like, does this actually serve the well-being of, of survivors mm-hmm. because
1: I'm not sure. I think right. that is my point. I do think that public call have utility. I think and this is based on anecdotal knowledge. It's not, again, it's mm-hmm. not coming from a sociological point of view, but I think um, it's more difficult to articulate bigger experiences of pain rather than smaller experiences of pain. And I've seen this in a few cases where, you know, someone has um and this is not just about variations of like pain or like varying levels of pain uh it could also be about someone's behavior at a larger extent than an individual level so for example uh one person in a company airs an like you know allegation about how her boss did something to her like stares at her all the time or asked her out um and was extremely lewd or inappropriate or whatever and then someone else has an allegation against the same man and says that, you know, he misbehaved with me too. And mm-hmm. then more people start um, articulating similar um, accounts of um, misbehavior, which means that mm-hmm. one person's account has allowed other people to sort of come out with their experiences. And there on, we sort of trace like a pattern of behavior that this person has been exhibiting for like years. So mm-hmm. there is, I think, merit in... Um, articulating these sort of smaller pains or um, less traumatic experiences. It could also mean that, you know, if a woman sees three or four women who are articulating these um, experiences of dick pics or um, being leered at or um, inappropriate behavior, they might feel like, okay, you know, these women are talking, there's this conversation going on. It is possible Mm -hmm. for me to talk about something more grievous that happened to me. So Mm -hmm. we don't know how these things play out. And again, all of this is anecdotal. I'm not basing it on some great sociological finding. But um, it is true that, you know, when you look at someone else who's articulating pain, especially about someone who has caused pain to you, you can feel like, you know, I need to speak up about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, that's a great point. And I Mm -hmm. think it's just what makes all of this so much messier in regards to us being able to be like this should be and this should not be it's like we can't actually I think that is the going back to the expertise question I don't think there's a single expert out there who can prescribe like this is how it should mm-hmm. be and this is how it should not be you mm-hmm. know I mm-hmm. feel like um this is like the 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 problem with this but mm-hmm. sort of um, one thing that I wanted to one thing that I did want to say is Mm -hmm. I mean I think it's a point that I made a roundabout way but I want to make it more clearly in response to what you just said is that um, I think that what happens when you there's a slipperiness of like the discourse that I feel Mm -hmm. like Me Too engendered and expanding the parameters of what constitutes sexual violence Mm -hmm. from violence and rape to you know sexist jokes and you know direct you know like harassment like you know he kept DMing me and you know he told me Mm -hmm. I'm hot Mm -hmm. you know when you, when you sort of keep expanding the parameters of what constitutes a call-out, I feel like what ends up happening is that the intent of something like the Me Too movement diminishes. So, mm-hmm. for example, if I say that X-Man was Me Too'd, you can assume anything about him. You mm-hmm. know, you, even if I'm saying, oh, this guy was Me Too'd because of a dick pic, people will be like, oh my God, like, they might assume that he's a rapist. And I think that's, mm-hmm. like, the problem. We're basically flattening what sexual like something that has a wide range of you know experiences you're basically mm-hmm. flattening it out under this one name of me too you know mm-hmm. um and it's gone and which is why i feel like it's gone from you know even and then it even flattens out things like the power dynamics at play because something that you know was initially entered our consciousness because of harvey weinstein who is arguably the most powerful figure in hollywood a repeat mm-hmm. offender rapist like you know mm-hmm. terrible man fucking gnome it went from like oh like this guy to like um, a, a b-grade independent stand-up comic who sent women mm. dick pics like you could you could you know like it's like a free-for-all then like you can just say that about any man who has offended you or you know and and I and I wonder about whether that is could be like an effective movement or whether we are kind of diminishing the movement mm. um by framing like someone like Utsav Chakrabarti as someone who is powerful, he's not, mm-hmm. and I don't think the women he was um, doing this to were subordinate to him in any way, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's my larger problem with this. Like I think we aren't. There isn't clear language being used, and we're all kind of hiding behind a vagueness um, oh, because we okay. don't. Yeah. On yeah. the
1: subject of vagueness, I, I wanted to bring up something. I will. I will come back to this point oh, briefly huh. sometime. Uh, I think uh, this is a conversation that people have in newsrooms, people have on social media all the time, everywhere. Uh, And it is uh, oftentimes um, sort of weaponized against people who do call-outs, which is that um, the language used or imperfect testimonies or incorrect Mm. testimonies or um, forgotten details and stuff. Uh, I I think it's important to establish that... um, it's not always the victim's fault that they've forgotten certain details about the terrible things that have happened to them. It's just that's how Mm -hmm. memory works. That's how trauma works. That's how we process it. We forget certain details. But I think Mm -hmm. it's equally important to be accountable for the things you're saying, to know that it can be chased back to you, that you have to, as much as possible, remember all the details that happened to you to whatever extent that you can and to put them out in the clearest fashion possible. Not because someone's asking it of you but because what you're saying is going to be used against someone else inevitably right which means that we need to be more i think when a call out is happening there needs to be a certain mindfulness about the allegation that is being framed i don't mean that you hold yourself back from saying certain things but to just ensure that whatever you are saying to your credit is as um Close to the truth as you remember it, you know. Yeah, to no, it's not, as simple as there has to be a yeah. mindfulness about it. I think that is the yeah. It's as simple
0: point. as yeah. It's as simple as if you want to fire a shot, then make sure it hits the
1: target. And even like, you know, sort of like that, or to you know, yeah. just, uh, details that are essential. They should be part of the story. What your age was, what the other person's age was, where the incident took place. You know, things like that. And this is something I realized um, as a sort of top-down approach not as a a bottom-down bottom-up approach which is that i'm looking at it as a journalist and i will be asking these questions so when we don't have answers to these questions it doesn't mean that we can't do the story it just helps to have these sort of it helps to have the information as all the thing that i want to come back to is what you said about um what the movement has sort of been um what it has become as opposed to what it could be or you know Um, who gets to dominate it and stuff and I think my criticism more about that has to do with how it was a privileged person's movement in India to begin with Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: to be able to be part of this movement you need to have a twitter account you need to have the vocabulary to be able to express yourself in this way Um, you know all of these things are inherently part of the movement so to a certain extent I think that is what is determining the um, accounts that are being shared I'm not sure if I'm correcting this or not, but I think that is mm-hmm. one of the things. So, if we're if we're talking about why didn't this movement, you know, trickle down to blue collar employees, or why didn't it trickle down to
0: um, people domestic working workers in the informal or sector, women in prisons
1: yeah. or women whose labor is not considered labor to begin with, you know, things like that. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's a privileged person's movement to begin with. So, I think if we that is something we can do in the future. That is something that we should build upon. Mm-hmm. but um if you're making that criticism then you're ignoring the fact that it was a very privileged persons movement to begin with this doesn't mean that it doesn't have significance it just means that the subset of people is dealing with is very specific that's all yeah and it's a privileged persons
0: movement to begin with and also the men who are being called out are figures or you know or women will basically invent so the icons mm-hmm. like it was invented in the case of Sachchagrapati that this is a powerful man like mm. when he whatever um when he blah, 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 yeah, i not going to say anything about him, but um, like, uh, but, and I think with the case of like domestic workers informal formal labor, women in prison, all of that, the problem is is that the men that they are going to be calling out are not like men who have any kind of like social media cachet or, you know, like, it's not going to be men who you can be like, oh, you can like Google him Oh he has a Twitter account who, and you can like at him on Twitter and like or block him on Twitter. Like, mm-hmm. it suddenly, like, you know, like, it suddenly becomes, like, it becomes even harder to really figure out what you want to do with the story like that. So, I think that is also something that comes at play with Me Too movement, because it's ultimately right. a movement about visibility.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not a movement about justice, it's a movement I about think, visibility.
1: Mm-hmm. I think power, I mean, I have a few thoughts about power in terms of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I think is that, um, inevitably, because of how Twitter works, because of... um social media algorithms and stuff it just means that you're going to see the accounts of famous people over perhaps more serious accounts of people who are not as popular that's just a yeah. function of what social media is like and that is one of the criticisms of it and it, it shouldn't mean that like just because I don't have a big following that if something grievous happened to me I shouldn't be like like you know what I'm trying to say right like I yeah. should deserve that sort of attention simply because of what happened to me I shouldn't need like to be verified for that attention to follow or whatever else. And I
0: shouldn't, and you shouldn't have to frame the guy like he's a, no, he can fucking suck at his job and it's still, you know, like he can be terrible. He can be the least influential man in the world, you know, like, but it's still like matter, you know.
1: The other point I had about power is that I think, um, there exists a definite power dynamic within relationships. But I think Mm -hmm. there exists a power dynamic between people as individuals, which is to say that um, if you are in a relationship with someone, there is a power dynamic, of course. But there's also relative Mm -hmm. power in terms of who you are in society and who they are in society. And Mm -hmm. that often, um, that is integral to a movement like this. Because like you said, in Harvey Weinstein's case, he was obviously in power both in the personal dynamic and as an entity. But that's mm-hmm. not always the case, I think, in um Me Too accounts. Sometimes Yeah, and especially you know how we, how initially
0: we used in, in like the in an earlier part of the episode you said that, you know, we have to account for the fact that they can be bad faith actors. I mean mm. like if you you women do lie about sexual Like if you look at you know, the history of white women and black men in America, like Mm. women lie. I'm sure that, you know, with the whole love jihad thing, there will be, you know, invented cases of, you know, Muslim men doing X and Y to a woman. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, we we live in a world in which gender is not mm. the only access of oppression.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I I see a lot of people throwing out, uh, throwing around the word intersectionality. It is also for Mm -hmm. some godforsaken reason earned a bad name. I don't understand why Mm -hmm. people don't like the word intersectionality. That's also a ridiculous way of looking at it. But um, if your feminism is really intersectional, it means that you are accounting for not just the gender differences between people, but also the class differences between people, the social Mm -hmm. differences between people. And this is somewhere I think it it kind of gets forgotten in the whole dynamic of things, I guess. What you said about white women blaming black men is a great example for this. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, I think we've just about addressed a lot of what we wanted to address.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I know that we provide no easy answers. (laughs) Um, And I think if anything, we've just complicated this more and more, but hopefully we've given some people something to think about. That's the only, yeah. Yeah, that's the only hope we can have. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much to um, Nija for joining me and you know getting into this with me i really appreciate it it was nice to talk to someone who was like is who is like-minded um in this regard and had similar thoughts as i do but also like pushed back on when you know on things to really so that we could really get into everything in a very like intensive way
1: thank you aliza for this conversation and for inviting me on waste fellows can i call myself a one-time waste fellow after this
0: you can call yourself a lifelong waist <laughs> fellow. You, right, you, that you can... know some people, you know some people, like, I'm like, okay, like, there's some men who listen to the podcast, so I'm like, you're never going to be a waist fellow, like, like, sorry. But then there's some people who I'm just like, okay, you were like a born waist fellow because I love you so much and you're one of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I'm. that's going to be an honor I'm going to wear all the time. Yeah. But thank you for inviting me. I think this helped me sort of... Um, Like, you know, wade through my own thoughts a little bit. I hope people will take away something from it. Yeah, I
0: hope people aren't mad at us. But...